Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Matt Davis. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. Uh, Aaron, I'm going to call you this week. I feel the call to go to Hawaii and do a mission trip over there. That'll be great. Well, welcome. Thank you for coming. You made it here. This is a good thing. Uh, let's talk about this. Our need for comfort is a real thing. Our need when we are faced up against certain trials, when we have things that are off on the horizon or right in front of us, our need to be comforted in those moments is a big thing. And for some of you ladies, one of those big challenges in your life is birthing a child, right? Now, I remember going through this. We've done this three times. We have three children. And we went through the classes. We did all of the stuff. And one of the things that we learned in the class was that you want to make sure that you have something that you can focus on in that moment. So we decided for our first child that we were going to, we didn't have anything else except we had a dog and our dog was Sadie. And so we got a picture of Sadie the dog and at the right moment, I, I had it in my back pocket, at the right moment I was going to pull it out and I was going to say, Marilee, focus on Sadie. And I was super excited about it. I was ready. I mean, the rest of it was really awful for me and for her too. And it wasn't. She, she killed it. She was awesome. But I remember that moment, right? And you can you see the monitor and, and guys, if you're in this position, you don't say, I think another one's coming. They know already that another one is coming, right? And, and so I, I remember the moment. It's coming. Contractions are getting a little bit more intense. And so I, I pull out the picture of... Sadie, the German Shepherd dog, Marilee, focus on Sadie. She hits it out of my hand. <laughs> I don't want to hear that right now. Oh my goodness, right? But I felt so good about like being that support. I was there to comfort. I was there to be with her in that moment. Well, child number two comes and she says, Hey, uh, I was just thinking, you know, as we're getting ready for this next birth, I, I want somebody there with me who will be able to be like an emotional support, somebody who will be able to take me through this, someone who's going to do, and I'm like, do you not remember the last birth? Like I was there for all, I did all of that. And then she introduced me to this concept of a doula. You know what a doula is? Right, it's all of that, it's that support, it's all of that stuff. And I said, what, what about me? But we ended up having a doula and I said, thank you God for doulas of the world because that woman knew what was going on. I didn't get hit once during the entire thing and my wife was a rock star, so well done. Now let me transition because you have a fear that is real. You have something, we all have something in our lives that that stir us to the point that you might even be in agony. You might even be in a place where your soul is troubled. And, and so the heaviness and the weightiness of what we have to talk about this morning is real. And we need to talk about this idea of what do we do in those times and where do we go for comfort and how do we work this through? Um, we're looking today at 10 verses out of Mark chapter 14. And this is the point in the series, and I know that we've been in Mark for a long time, but I'm telling you, this is the part. And I love that we are doing this because we have had our eyes on this 
passage of scripture, these passages that are coming up, because we're building up. We are in this season now. Um, some are participating in Lent, right? We are moving towards the cross, and beyond the cross, we are moving towards resurrection. But Mark is building this story, and the war, the battle takes place, not just at the cross, but I believe that the real battle for Jesus takes place in this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, in Hebrew, it's got shmanim. It means literally just an oil press. Now, this garden is a real place. I want to just walk you through. Uh, this is a picture from the 1890s. I don't even know how that's possible, but that's what it said on there. Uh, but it's right here. This is looking from the Temple Mount towards the east, and you have the Mount of Olives over there. You can actually see this is a modern day. But it's this area right in here. You can see from the Temple Mount, you have the Garden of Gethsemane. Going up here, this is, we have the Kidron Valley. We have the Mount of Olives. This is, this is the place. And then today, if you were to go there, and many of you have, and you've come with us, and there's more opportunities to come, but it's this little area here that tradition says that this is the place. It was a walled-in garden. You go there today, and there are these beautiful, amazing olive trees. They say that some of them were there and witnessed Jesus and his disciples, 2,000-year-old trees. And you walk through, and this is some of the beauty of what that looks like. And so we go through, and we walk through the garden, this place that was an oil press. This was the place where they would take the olives from the trees, and they would crush them. This is where they made the olive oil that would be used for the temple services. And there were a whole bunch of them. It's this hillside of all of these trees that were there. And so we were there, and we had Brandon, just our, our trip in, in November. We had Brandon and Eric, and they were teaching us. But it's this really amazing and beautiful moment where we talk, and it's emotional, and it's heavy. Uh, there, there are some, Spurgeon even says that when you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, that you should go there and take your shoes off. This is holy ground. And so we share just a little bit, but then we send people out and we go out and, and we have these times where we are meeting with God and we are standing there. And I believe that it's during these times that, that Jesus has this sense. He knows what is coming and he's fulfilling scripture. And I want you to have this passage. Maybe one of the most foundational passages, Isaiah 53, it says that he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows. It's interesting. Go through the New Testament narrative on the life of Jesus, and it really doesn't ever say anywhere that I found that he laughed. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. So this passage that I want us to dig into today, we're looking at the crushing of the king. And I think it's no mistake that Jesus specifically goes to this place where they would press, where they would crush the olives. Now, look at this in Mark chapter 14, and we're in verse 32. We're going to look at 32 to 42. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one in front of you. It's on page 39 on the second half. 
of the numbering there. Page 39, but Mark 14, 32, and it says this. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. Now, I've listed in the outline in your bulletin, there's the other gospels that cover the story, and I encourage you to look at those as well. But John 18, it says that this was a place that was familiar. This was a place that the disciples went often. They had some connection that got them into this garden place. It was a place of familiarity to them. And so Jesus, he's experiencing agony in this place where the olives are crushed. And he says, he took his disciples and he took with him Peter and James and John and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said, my soul is deeply grieve to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Now in this place where the olives are crushed, one of the activities that we do on our Israel trip is we go to this place called Katsreen. If you've never been, you go there and you say, what is the thing that you are looking forward to most about going to Israel? Nobody ever says, I can't wait to go to Katsreen. You don't even know about this place, but I promise you that if you've gone there, you say that was a highlight. And so what we do is we go to this ancient Talmudic village from the 4th century, and they've rebuilt some stuff. We put on all of the garb, and we dress, and we have this experience. And you can see here that you have these three different kinds of oil press. They would take the olives, and this was our, actually our guide that took us through, a New Yorker named Moshe. And you take the olives, and you throw it in. Um, and it's, it, it goes into this press, and then you would take uh, either by human strength or a donkey, and they would roll this around, and they would crush, and you could listen, and you hear the, not only the, the flesh, but you really hear the pit of the olive that's being crushed, and it kind of creates this pulp. It's like the best olive tepanade that you would ever imagine, right? And so we actually got to do this. And so here's some of our human effort. Sorry, I didn't ask anybody on the trip if I had permission to show any of your pictures. You signed some kind of release, so just deal with it. All right, here we go. So we have Brandon and Mary Jane, and they're doing it. But my favorite one, we didn't have a donkey, but we found this guy right here. It's the hunchback. <laughs> the hunchback, our senior pastor, Eric. But... And people say, you can just go there and have all that fun, but it's hard work. We're, we're crushing olives over there. But I want, us to, I want us to understand this, that we need to understand the depth of the grief of Jesus. This is a place of battleground for Jesus. If you look at, at some of these words, it says that he was distressed. That word distressed, it, it's this word amaze. It, it means awestruck. You look at this other word, that he was troubled. It's astonished. That, that he, even though he is Jesus, fully 100% man, he is also 100% God, but even though in his deity he knows what is to come, his humanity, he looks at what is to come. And I want you to understand, we will flesh out what it is that he is so distressed, awestruck, astonished, amazed, and troubled at as he looks. But I want you to see in his humanity the struggle. And the author of Hebrews gives us this amazing picture. In Hebrews 5, it says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. 
Have you been to a point in your life where you fall to your knees and you go before God with loud crying and tears? I think it's not if, but when. Have you hit that point where you just drop down and you are screaming out, that you are crying out, whether you've lost somebody, whether there was a betrayal, whether you are finding out that you have some kind of sickness. Maybe there was a, a job that was lost that was incredibly significant. Whatever those things are, that moment in your life, I want you to understand that our King, Jesus, experienced that, that he cried out with loud tears, loud crying and tears, to who? To the one who was able to save him from death. That even if he were to die, that God would be able to deliver him, to resurrect him from death. And he was heard because of his piety, because of his holiness. This level of grief was unique even to Jesus. He's distressed and he's troubled. And it says that his soul was grieved, deeply grieved. That, that phrase deeply grieved in the Greek is perilupas. It means peri, like perimeter, surrounded by sorrow. And so Jesus is here in this battleground. And I also believe that this is where the enemy once again engages him. I, I think that we think that Satan's goal was to try to get Jesus to go on the cross. If we could just kill him, then we have won. I actually think that Satan was trying to keep him from the cross. If Jesus went to the cross as a perfect sacrifice for us to take our sins... We have salvation. If he doesn't, then we are all condemned to hell. And so Jesus prays. And just like he was tempted in the wilderness three times, he prays. And we're going to see three prayers. He prays these prayers of desperation. Look at this. Verse 35, And he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible the hour might pass him by. Praying that the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Go back through the Gospels. Go back through Mark and you'll see this is not the first time that Jesus has prayed. It's not that all of a sudden he has this massive encounter and this is the first time. But that's kind of what we do, right? We just, now we have this agony. Now we have this pain. And man, God is now my last resort. Now I'm going to go to him. But Jesus has this pattern of this fellowship with the Father. And this first prayer that he prays, Abba, Father, he's Daddy. He's crying out. All things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Please, remove this cup. But not my will, 
I'm still going to submit myself to you. In verse 37, he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want you to see how the walls are closing in for Jesus. I want you to understand that he's had moments where he's fed 5,000 people. 5,000 men, right? So lots of people. And there's a time where he fed 4,000. There's this point in John 6 where everybody's around him. But then as he's talking about the cost of discipleship and what's going to happen, that they start leaving one by one, right? But even just the night, that night right there, they, they had the greatest meal ever, right? The Passover meal. He said, I earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. And he's sitting there with his disciples. It's him and the 12. And at that meal, he loses one. And now they get up and they cross over. They go from that upper room in the old city and they cross the Kidron. The word Kidron means dark or obscured. Uh, and, and Josephus says that at that time, up to 250,000 lambs were killed. And through the drainage system, that the blood of the lambs would come pouring and they would go through the Kidron. And imagine this picture as Jesus is walking with his 11 now and he is passing through the blood, and he's thinking about the Passover lambs that are being sacrificed in the temple, knowing that he will be the lamb that will be slain. That it'll be his blood. And he goes through the Kidron with the disciples, and they go up a little steep uh, hill, and they find themselves in this garden. And, and it says that as he's going, as he starts, that, that he, he says to his disciples, I want you guys to stay here. And then he says that it says that he took Peter, James, and John with him. And so we know that there's eight staying right here. And it says that they went a little ways further. And now Peter, James, and John, they're, they're here. And he says, wait, I'm going to pray. And he says, don't keep awake. He doesn't say keep awake. He actually says, keep watch. Keep watch. That you might not fall into temptation. Keep watch. And so he leaves those guys and says that he went a stone's throw away. Okay, so it's not that far, right? It's like the distance of, like, they would have all been kind of around here in this size space. And Jesus is over here and he's praying. But he cares about his disciples so much, he's coming back and he says, You're sleeping? You're sleeping? I'm, I'm having the time of my life. I'm in agony. I need you to keep, I need you to be praying. I need you to be watchful. So he rouses them. Guys, pray. And so then it says that he went again. He went away and prayed and he said the same words. Now I know some people, they, they, they believe in this, name it and claim it, just pray it once. You don't need to pray more than once because God will just give it to you. But I, I see this pattern in scripture to pray over and over. Give him no rest, right? And so Jesus is praying. And he says these same words. If this cup could be passed on. God, your will, not mine. In Matthew, it says, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done.
And again, he went away and prayed, and he said the same words. And again, he came, and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Luke actually tells us that they were asleep because of sorrow. I mean, not only did they have a big meal, they had four cups of wine. They're a little tired, right? It's, a, it's in the middle of the night. Like, I mean, what if I just said, like, what if I called you up tonight, 11 o'clock, and said, hey, let's go pray for an hour. You just have four cups of wine. All right. We, we fault the disciples, but they're hurting. Just circumstantially, just physically, but the sorrow. Have you just been so grieved? Have you ever been so grieved that you just need to sleep? And the depression has just overcome. It's a way of like, we just kind of shut down, right? I, I think we have to look into what Luke is saying here, that they are asleep because of their sorrow. I'm not sure at this point that they totally understand that it was Judas or what Judas was up to. They just saw him leave the table and he disappeared. But Jesus is not giving us lots of happy news. He keeps saying, the son of man will be betrayed. Uh, I'm going to be killed, but then I will raise again in three days. But Jesus is kind of just going over and over again. And I think they're just overcome with sorrow, but they don't truly at this point still understand. And so then there's this third prayer. Matthew 26, he says, he left them again and he went away and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. In Mark, he says, he came the third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? I want you to understand what Jesus is going through. He's asking his father, is there any way? Jesus knows this moment is coming. Uh, an earlier passage, if you look at John chapter 12, which is earlier in this story, Jesus, he says, now my soul has become troubled. Jesus is starting to think about what is to come. And even there, okay, in John's account, it's John chapter 18 is the garden scene. But all the way back in John chapter 12, he says that my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. It's for this purpose he came. He knew that this hour was the hour. In fact, Luke, he says... While I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. You guys had all kinds of opportunities. But the hour and the power of darkness are yours. This is it. And the thing that's troubling Jesus is this cup. What is this cup? Jesus looked deeply into the cup of suffering. Now we can get a little bit mixed up. What is this cup that Jesus is asking the Father to remove from him? Remove this. If it's possible, remove this cup. And this is where I would say there are some who would say there are many ways to get to heaven. We don't necessarily have to go through Jesus, right? And he's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But even Jesus, he's saying, is there another way besides me? 
is there another way besides this cup? And Jesus looks deeply into this cup. And so some would say that the cup represents the physical death, that, that Jesus is worried about the beating and he can feel and he can hear the sound of the cat of nine tails, the whip that's coming. He could feel the nails in his hands. And I believe that in his humanity, yes, there is a fear there, obviously. I mean, if, if he was just God and said, eh, no big deal, I'm God, I won't even feel it. Then we would say, well, then he didn't really suffer. He didn't really take the punishment for me. Some would suggest that this cup that he wanted to pass from him was it's significant of a premature death. That he wanted to do more and his ministry was going to be longer, but... This is all coming too soon, and so things are a little bit out of control for Jesus. But I believe that this cup represents separation from God. At the Passover meal, there's those three glasses of wine. That third glass that he says I'm not going to have was the cup of redemption. He says, I'm not going to drink this cup, this cup of your redemption, but I'm going to drink a very different cup. And this is the cup of of God's wrath. And you can look, I put a whole bunch of passages in there and I've written about it on the back, on the digging deeper part. You can read a little bit more about it. But this cup of the wrath of God, that God all throughout the Old Testament is saying, I'm going to pour out my wrath. Yes, Jesus is looking at the, the bloody and the horrible crucifixion, but his temptation towards sin, he has that temptation, but he would never sin. He could never sin. It's this holiness, a holy God looking, and for the first time, he's awestruck, he's amazed, and he's astonished because he is going to have separation from the Father. And he's not just going to have a sip from the cup of God's wrath, but he is going to drink it in full. And I think sometimes as I'm looking at what he has done for me, that I am not giving it enough. I'm thinking that Jesus has replaced and he has taken my sin. And not that my sin is any better or any worse than ever, but I think like, okay, well, I, I sin on this spectrum and these things, and, but at least it's not those things. But when Jesus drank that cup, he did that for every sin. For every person who is going to be forgiven whether they were a pedophile or a rapist, whether they were a murderer or a serial murderer, all of that evil, all of that massive amount of sin for those who have repented and taken Jesus as their own, he died and took on the eternity of their punishment. Separated from the Father for three hours on the cross while it was dark. Separation. And he says, it is finished. He took that on. And that is the part that was breaking him. That was the part that was crushing him. And there's this redemptive picture because centuries earlier, there was another garden. It wasn't Gethsemane, it was Eden. And the first Adam, he learned disobedience and he brought about death. But now we have what Corinthians calls this second Adam, the last Adam. He learned obedience to the will of the Father. And because he did that, it brought life. 
want you to sit with this, and I want you to understand what he was going up against when he was making these decisions for us. Um, we're going to take a trip to Kentucky to go see some family in May, and one of the stops that I can't wait to go to is called the Abbey of Gethsemane. And it's just a place of retreat and prayer, but there's been this song written by a guy named Andrew Peterson uh, that has struck me, that has pulled at my heart, and there's this scene that he describes right in the middle of it. And I want you to like, don't, don't think that this is for everybody else. This is for you this morning. Whatever your agony is, whatever you, you've been crushed with, I want you to take this in and I want you to say this is for me. I want you to sit with the words and I want you to emotionally connect with what is going on and what Jesus is doing in this moment. to drive a man crazy it'll break a man's faith it's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been seen when he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart when he has to remember what broke him apart and this yoke may be easy but this burden is not
Jesus sweat blood. For the hope before him, he endured 